Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for your family, your children, and this, what we call our family here at Calvary, and the uh, deep and abiding hunger uh, to know your word. And uh, it's just so impressive to me to find a group of people that has a desire not just to know what the New Testament says, but what the entire book declares. What you have said in your word from the beginning, in this book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. So Lord, as we uncover this great chapter, chapter 15 tonight, as that becomes the scope of our consideration, we do pray that your Holy Spirit would override the vessel and would anoint that which is spoken, and especially as it is heard by your people. I pray you'd also give us ears to hear, to put it in New Testament terms, ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, every single thing and every single person has a beginning, save one person, and that is God himself, who has no beginning and no end, who is eternal. But everything has a beginning, an origin, and the book of Genesis is the book of origins. We have seen the origin, the beginning of the creation of the universe. We've seen the beginning, the origin of mankind, the origin of marriage, the origin of sin in the Garden of Eden. We've then seen God's origin of salvation, how he immediately went to work with his plan known to him from the beginning of the world to bring a Savior into the world who would, in the words of Genesis, crush the head of the serpent. Now, to do that, it was in God's plan to begin a nation. And we have the origin of the nation of Israel. That's really in the scope of our consideration in Genesis chapter 15, really in the life of Abram. Abram, a pagan worshiper who lived in Iraq, Ur of the Chaldees, called by God to leave his hometown and go to a land, the land of Canaan, inhabited by Canaanites, chiefly the Amorites. He was called to go there. When he obeyed God's command an invitation to come and be blessed in that land. It began what we call the patriarchal era, or the patriarchal stage of history. From around 2165 B.C. to 1804 B.C. is this patriarchal stage where we look at Abram, who became Abraham, his son Isaac, Jacob, and the twelve tribes. As they began, that's the patriarchal era. So we are finding the beginning of the nation of Israel 
That's important to God's plan because they will become the receptacle for the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah who fulfills Scripture to come and be the Savior of the world. All of that is found in Genesis, and that's what we're uncovering as we do it chapter by chapter. Tonight, we're in chapter 15 of the book of Genesis. Now, in chapter 14, we saw that Abram began a uh, very heroic rescue operation. You see, there were these, these four kings who went to war with five kings. Four kings in the north, they formed a coalition. Now, when I say kings from the patriarchal era, they were really like mayors, mayors of a city. They controlled a town. They were the king of the town. But they would form coalitions and become nations. Four kings from the lineage of Ham against five kings from the lineage of Shem. So we have the Hamites versus the Shemites. And it's different than the Hatfields versus the McCoys. Uh, This was an area the four kings dominated and had for 12 years these five kings, Semitic kings, paying money, tax money, tribute money to these four kings under the headship of one guy named Kedor Leomer. In the 13th year of that taxation agreement, the five kings revolted against the four, which caused the four under the leadership of Kedor Leomer to come and take siege of those five. And boy, did they clean house. They took spoils of war with them. They rounded up people, hostages, and they took them captive. Caught in the crossfire of this international conflict was the nephew of Abram named Lot. He gets taken as part of the the captives. He's a refugee, a POW. So what does Abram do? In an unprecedented and tremendously courageous effort, He takes 318 army men. They're really servants in his household. He uh, gives them weapons and he says, we're going to war, boys. And he raids the coalition of the four kings at nighttime and in an unprecedented victory is able to win the battle, take back the spoils, including Lot, and let the captives go free. When returning from that battle, he meets with an unusual king, the king of Salem, called Melchizedek. Remember him? He's the um, monarch of Salem. The mysterious monarch named Melchizedek, if you want to remember him that way. He's the king of Salem. When Abram meets Melchizedek, Melchizedek gives him bread and wine. And Abram pays tithes to Melchizedek, gives him money, honoring him, if you will, worshiping him. In the very least, Melchizedek is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some believe it is actually the Lord Jesus Christ as a theophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. I'll let you argue that and debate that or take whatever position you want. So he meets Melchizedek, the magnificent monarch of Salem, but he also meets another king. And this is where we left off, and this is all important to chapter 15, verse 1. The second monarch 
is King Bera of Sodom. Now, I'm really thrilled to be going through this because just yesterday I was on the phone uh, to one of our uh, fellow church members who is right now excavating biblical Sodom, Dr. Stephen Collins. And uh, he's now in his fifth season uncovering that city, the city of Sodom, where King Bera was. So Abram meets the king of righteousness, that's what Melchizedek means, and let's call Bera the king of rottenness. He's the king of uh, Sodom. So the king of Salem and the king of Sodom are met. The king of Sodom, that corrupt city, corrupt it says before the Lord, King Bera offered to give to Abram a sum of money, sort of as a reward, a thanksgiving reward uh, for fighting the battle, letting his people come back to Sodom and, and bringing back the spoils of war. Abram declines the reward. I don't want it. I don't even want a, a, a token. I don't want anybody to say that Abram was made rich by somebody else. So he refuses the reward, and that's all important to the first verse of chapter 15, after these things. Oh, and by the way, if you were wondering, we're not going to make it through chapter 16, because if I don't say that, you might get worried around the end of chapter 15, thinking, I I know Skip, and he might just plow through 16, but I won't do that. This is too important a chapter to go fast in. After these things... The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And notice what he said. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Isn't that beautiful? I refuse the reward of man. I don't want anybody to say that you made Abram rich. God says, don't be afraid. I am your protection. I am your exceedingly great reward. Why did God begin by the phrase, don't be afraid? Well, I think it's pretty easy to answer that. It's probably because Abram was afraid. See, you don't walk up to someone and go, don't be afraid, unless you sense that they are fearful. Now, so far in Genesis, I have told you every time we come to a first mention of something, I tell you the first time it's mentioned. Here is the very first mention of a familiar biblical phrase, do not be afraid or fear not. You'll find it about 70 plus times in the Bible. This is the very first time we find it. Do not be afraid or fear not. Well, it begs the question, what would Abram have to be afraid of? Let me give you a few suggestions. Number one, you notice that it says God spoke to him in a vision. Have you noticed that so often in the Bible when an angel appears or the angel of the Lord appears or the Lord appears himself or there's some kind of a vision that people get fearful? They see an angel and they freak out and so the angel has to immediately say, now don't be afraid because they're scared stiff. Don't be afraid. When Daniel had the vision in chapter 10 of that book of the angel giving him messages of the future, he said, I grew weak and 
my face took on a deathly pale. He just became so fearful. When John in Revelation chapter 1 gets a vision of the glorified Lord, that beautiful picture of the risen, the resurrected, the resplendent Christ, it says, when I saw him, I fell on my feet as a dead man. It was just too much. And I suppose that to get a, a vision from God where you're hearing his voice and seeing something would be a fearful experience. So number one, it could, it could be that, that he saw the vision and he was afraid at seeing that. It was unusual. It was noteworthy. And so God just begins by saying, hang loose, buddy. Don't be afraid. There's a second reason that he could have been afraid at this point. Number two, he had just been victorious in a battle. He had been very courageous. And I have talked to lots of people who have been in battle, who have been able to muster up a certain amount of courage, even when against the the worst kinds of odds, only after the victory to be afraid and in deep depression. It's interesting. It seems like at the needed time, the Courage and strength is there, but afterwards, when there's a moment to let down and rest, the person becomes fearful, depressed. Psychologists call it post-traumatic stress. And it's even found in the Bible sometimes. Elijah, who was able to draw sides and a contest against the prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth, you remember in 1 Kings 18. Afterwards, when Jezebel chases him down into the desert, he is depressed and he just sort of hangs out under a broom tree and says, Okay, I just want to die now. Boy, how different from the Elijah we saw on Mount Carmel, the warrior of God. But afterwards, depressed. It could be that the battle just took a tremendous toll on Abram and now he's in the doldrums. He's depressed. So the Lord is comforting him. Don't be afraid. Here's a third possibility, and I lean toward this. Abram, at this point, exhibited the fear of man. The Bible says the fear of man brings a snare. He just victoriously fought a coalition of four powerful kings who had been able to subdue five cities for 12 years. And when those five cities rebelled, the four kings were able to completely wipe out, in terms of power, strength, and battle, five kings. Now, Abram, with 318 men, was victorious. But perhaps he's thinking, what if Keterleomer decides to retaliate like he did when those five kings refused to pay tribute to him? What if he comes back? I only have 318. I know the Lord was with me. I know I was victorious. But I may not be the next time. Could be all over. Also, he had just been with Bera, the king of Sodom, who wanted to give him some spoils of war. He refused the spoils of war. Refused to take the money. And in so doing, was refusing a possible future alliance that he could have a shield, the old writers used to call it, the shield of that city to protect Abram in case he was ever attacked again. He just basically said, I don't need your protection. Thus, the Lord said, I am your shield. I'm your protection. And I am your exceedingly great reward. 
So that is probably what is going on. He's just afraid of retaliation at what might happen because of the things that have already happened. Now, you should know something about fear, and you probably already do. It is one of the most destructive emotions that you can ever manifest. Destructive. It can paralyze you. Something else about fear, it's irrational. Isn't it? It defies your logic and your reason. You look at a situation, you go, okay, wait a minute, I can look at this logically. And you work your way through it and reason your way through it. But sometimes the emotion can eclipse the logic and you're just afraid. It's irrational. University of Wisconsin put out an interesting study some years back saying that 40% of the things we are afraid of will never happen. That we live a portion of our lives as servants to the emotion of fear over things that will never, ever happen. It's irrational. So for whatever reason he's afraid, the Lord gives him a beautiful promise. Do not be afraid. That's the commandment. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God... What will you give me? I just want you to follow and and notice this conversation. Abram, don't be afraid. Man, I'm your protection. I'm your reward. What are you going to give me? (laughs) Seeing that I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is not my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one will come from your own body, shall be your heir. The chapter begins with Abram in fear. He's in panic mode. How does God deal with his panic? Follow it carefully. God gives him a promise. He's panicked, so God gives him a promise. Don't be afraid. I'm your shield. You're exceedingly great reward. How does Abram respond to God's promise? With a perplexity. So we go from panic to promise to now perplexity. What are you going to give me? I don't have any children. And he mentions this guy, Eliezer. I'll get to that in a minute. Now, this is very important. And this is understandable. Because if you'll just follow me, go back with me to chapter 12. Most of us just have to turn one page. Chapter 12, verse 2. God says to Abram, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Well, to be a nation, you have to have what? Kids. This guy has no kids. He didn't even have a kid, a child. And God makes this beautiful promise. You know, you know, you're going to have, a nation will come out of you. We follow that further down to verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants, plural, I give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Again, descendants are mentioned. Children, offspring, many of them. Go to chapter 13, verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes now and look at the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. For all the land which you see, 
I give to you and to your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. All of these are wonderful, glorious, gracious promises. But so far, that's all they are. Promises. There's no children. God, where's the kids? These are really cool promises. Thanks for being my shield and my reward. I don't have any kids yet. And, by the way, the clock is ticking. Put yourself in Abram's sandals. When God called him in chapter 12, when he left Haran... He was 75 years young. In chapter 16, we're told he is 86 years old. So in chapter 15, the chapter we're presently at, he's probably around 85 years old. It's been 10 years. I was old then. I'm still old. In fact, I'm older. Where's the kids? These are beautiful promises, but there's no children. And then he points, he goes, the only heir that I have is Eliezer of Damascus. Now this is interesting. Who did Abram take with him because his brother had died? Lot. So in effect, Abram adopted Lot as his own, raising him. Now he's raised by now and he's out on his own. But according to the law of that era and that geography... Lot would have become the heir of Abram. He doesn't mention Lot. He mentions a guy named Eliezer of Damascus. Now here's a thought that you might find interesting that some of the commentators bring up. Damascus was known as the commerce capital of the world at the time of Abram. And it is thought that Eliezer of Damascus was a man in charge of one of those houses of commerce or banking house. So that to say the phrase Eliezer of Damascus is like saying in our vernacular, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Bank of the West. So he might be simply saying this, look, Lord, these are great promises and I love your words and the vision is really cool. And I'm really appreciative for all of the wealth that I have and all this land you promised. But what good does it do to have the wealth and the land and the promise without the kids? And when I die, the bank's going to get it anyway. Eliezer of Damascus. It might all go to them because of the tie-in. It could refer to that possibly. What will you give me, he asks. In verse 3, I love this. I love, love, love how this flows. Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house... is my heir. No offspring indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Okay, so the chapter begins in panic, fear, right? He's fearful, Abram's fearful. The fear, the panic is met with a promise of God. Abram hears the promise of God and offers a perplexity to God. Okay, cool, but I don't have any children. Now, how does God deal with his perplexity? With a promise. Not an explanation. This is beautiful. God didn't say, okay, look, dude, this is why it's taken so long. 
Okay, this is why I'm waiting. Now, now I'm going to explain to you what I'm doing and why this has just taken years and years and years. And here's the explanation. Here's the reason. God gives no reasons. God gives no explanation. God gives another promise. You know why? When we're really down and out, you can't live on explanations. What you really need are promises. That's what gives you hope. I want to give you an example. I will never forget the afternoon I came home from church, came to my house to find that my young son, who had been playing on top of a wall, fell down and cut his tongue almost in half with his teeth. So he's leaned over a bowl. The bowl is filled with blood. And uh, Lenya looks at me and says, do you think he's going to have to go to the hospital? Nathan's eyes are looking at me when she asks a question. He's going, he does not want to go. And I, I said, absolutely, he needs to go. So we take him to the hospital. The doctor took one look at him. And do you think the doctor looked at Nathan and said, now, Nathan, let me explain to you what has happened. That anterior dorsal surface has been incised, damaging, and bringing trauma to the lingual nerve. And the paresthesia that you feel is, do you think he did that? He didn't give him an explanation or a reason. He gave him a promise. He said, Nate, look at me. A few stitches, that's all, and you'll be fine in two weeks. That's what he needed. That's what we live off of. Not explanations, promises. Here's the perplexity. God answers it with a promise. Now, something about this promise, it's sort of the same promise, but a little bit different. It's exactly the same, only different. Let me explain. He repeats the promise, basically. He takes the same promise and he repeats it to him again. This shows me that God is loving and patient. He's not harsh with Abram. He didn't go, Abram, you idiot. You doofus. I mean, how many times do I have to tell you this? I can't believe it. Here it goes again. He's very patient with him to repeat the same promise he has been telling him for 10 years. He repeats the promise. That's gracious. Have it. Haven't we come across a promise that we've forgotten and God is gracious enough to remind us of that? We we read it in the Word and go, oh yeah, I I remember that. I got it. Okay, Lord, I got it. And we walk out and the very next day we've forgotten it. And then we might in a week read something else and it's that same promise but a little bit different. Oh yeah, I'm reminded of that. Several years ago when I was in college, I was running out of money. I was unable to buy groceries, but I did have um, a little bit of groceries in the cabinet. Hamburger helper is what I lived on in those days because it was easy. And I could cook a, a pot of hamburger helper and it would last all week or two weeks. You know, I'd, I'd cook it and, and then I'd eat a little bit and leave it on the stove and come back to it the next day and heat it up and, <laughs> and uh, eat a little more and then keep it on the stove, tin foil, and then come back and it lasts me a, a week or two. But I'd run out of Hamburger Helper. And one time in particular when I ran out of everything, no money, no Hamburger Helper, I had peanut butter. That's what I had, peanut butter and a little bread. And so I made peanut butter sandwiches and then I I rationed it down to just a slice of bread with peanut butter and jelly on top of that. And then the bread ran out and so it was spoonfuls of peanut butter. By the way, only Skippy peanut butter. 
I'm just kidding. So, just peanut butter. All the while, I'm reading the Bible, reading the Bible, reading the Bible, getting really worried, getting really worried, getting really worried, reading the Bible, getting worried. One day, I go to the mailbox. It was just after tax season, and my IRS check came in the mail. And when I saw the check from the IRS, I jumped up and I just, you know, shouted like hallelujah. Everybody in the neighborhood probably thought, this guy's nuts. But I was so excited. The IRS came through. (laughs) And, you know, uh, I had been listening to a Bible study tape and reading the word and, and something came to my mind. Well, now, wait a minute. How do you know that that check is really good? And I'm thinking, what do you mean really good? It's from the government. It's it's, it's a government check. It's got to be good. Government checks can't be bad. And it was like the Lord said, boy, when you read the promise in my word last week that I would take care of you, you didn't jump up and down and get all excited. One check from the IRS and you're all excited because you believe their promise. What about my promise? Busted, man. Busted. But God is gracious to repeat the promise. Second thing God does is clarify the promise. He clarifies it. He says, no, Abram, okay, listen carefully. You're going to have in your own body, God says, from your own body, a child is going to come. It's like God comes down to his level and says, Abram, let me tell you a little bit about the birds and the bees. This is how children work. They're not like heirs in a banking situation or or in a servant situation. From your own body, this heir is going to come. So God repeats the promise. God clarifies the promise. The third thing, notice, God expands on the promise. Verse 5, he brought him outside. And he said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. God takes him out on a clear Middle Eastern night. Before there were great cities and before there were great electrical displays that are in our cities so that you don't have light pollution, those were the days You could look up in the sky and you could be anywhere almost and see this brilliant display. And probably it was the time of month where either it was a waning or a waxing crescent of the moon. So the moon was dim. The stars were shouting in their brightness. And he goes, now check that out. Just look up. It's going to be like your kids. You won't be able to number them. I'm going to suggest that you do the same when you are feeling down and out and forsaken by God and you haven't seen God's promises just take a little drive, get out of the city, go to the mountains or, or out toward the west side and just stop the car and look up and realize, Dad did that. The one that I am trusting in, the one that I am placing my faith in did that. And sometimes it's the up look that gives you the better outlook as you realize what God can do. I love studying and considering the universe. I always have. Because when Abram looked up in that sky, he saw only a very tiny, minute portion of the galaxy that we call the Milky Way galaxy. It's where we live. It's our home, the Milky Way. It's our address in the universe. And it's just one of billions of universes, but we live in the Milky Way. But the Milky Way galaxy is 
by our standards, quite large. It's 10,000 light years by 100,000 light years in dimension. Relatively flat, but 10,000 by 100,000 light years. That means light traveling at 186,000 miles per second, it will take 100,000 years for it to get from this end to that end of one galaxy where we live. Just one. If you could travel at the speed of light, just just think of this for a moment. You could travel at 186,000 miles per second. You could circle the earth seven and a half times in one second. You could sail past the moon in one and a half seconds. If you wanted to go all the way to Venus, it would only take you two minutes and 18 seconds to get there. You keep going four minutes and 30 seconds, you'll sail past Mercury. Seven and a half minutes, you'll reach the sun. But if you want to go from one end of your galaxy to the other, it will take you 100,000 years going 186,000 miles per second. And Isaiah 40 talks about God as if to say, how big is your God? Isaiah said that God can measure the universe with his fingers, the span of a hand. God looks at the Milky Way galaxy. We go, whoa, 100,000 light years. And God says, oh, wait, 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 wait. Once you go 100,000 light years, you haven't even gotten out of the yard yet. Because I have billions and billions of other galaxies. And yet God looks down at all the galaxies and goes, it's only about that big to me. So every now and then it's good just to get perspective because we get so narrowly focused and to look up and go, wow, God did that. God can handle my situation. So he expands on the promise. He clarifies the promise and he repeats the promise. Verse 6, key verse. So he, Abram, so he believed in the Lord and he, the Lord, God, accounted it to him, Abram, for righteousness. Once again, read that verse. It is one of the key verses in all the Bible. In fact, circle it, underline it, memorize it. At least memorize it. I won't tell you to write in your Bible. But why not? And he believed in the Lord. And he accounted it to him for righteousness. Now the word believed is in the Hebrew, amen. Same root, amen. Amen. God made a promise. And it's like Abraham said, amen. Right on. I believe that. Now this is so important. Because there is a result that comes from Abram just listening to God's promise after he repeats it, clarifies it, expands it, and he just goes, okay, I believe that promise. I believe it. Because the result is God allows that small act of faith to be counted to Abram as righteousness. Now, I'm making a big deal out of this. You know why? The New Testament makes a huge deal out of this. In Romans chapter 4, in Galatians chapter 3, and in James chapter 2, those three places, this story and this verse is highlighted as the pivotal verse to explain the major doctrine that if you're a Christian you hold to dearly, justification by faith. That we're not saved by good works, we're not saved by keeping rituals, we're not saved by belonging to some uh, 
Christian organization. We are saved, made right with God purely by believing God, like Abram, who believed before the law of Moses was in existence, who believed before circumcision was in existence, who certainly believed before there was baptism or churches or any of that. He just believed. Now, that's so important, you got to look at just one of those passages. You ready? One of those passages. Turn to Romans chapter 4. What Paul is doing is answering a question. Here's the question. How was Abraham, the father of faith, he is called, the father of those who believe, how was Abraham justified, saved, made right with God? Was it by his works? Was it by keeping the law? Was it by being a religious person? Was it by trying hard and being sincere? Because once we find the answer to that question, we'll be able to answer the second question, how are we made right with God? How are we saved? By the keeping of the law? By knowing all the law? Or has it come by faith? So he begins, what then shall we say? Verse 1, chapter 4 of Romans, that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. You know how most people think that we're saved? Most people think that salvation is sort of like putting a frog in a pan full of milk. Here's that poor frog in the milk, and the milk is slippery, and he can't get out of the pan because the sides are too high, so he's struggling and paddling and paddling. But if he paddles long enough, he turns that into butter. And by his hard work over a long period of time, the frog will be able to get on top of a hardened surface, the butter now, and jump out. That's how people think we're saved. And so what Paul is saying, because it is what happened to Abram, is that's not what happened. He just simply said, Amen, I believe that. I really in my heart believe that promise. And God said, that's all that I will require to make you right with me, to give you a relationship with me. It's justification by faith, not by works, lest anyone should boast. You know how boring heaven would be if Abram or anybody else got there by working hard and being zealous and being religious. How boring heaven would be. You'd have to listen to that for billions of years. Well, you know, when I was, and I used to, and then this happened, and then I, and it's like, ugh, you know what those conversations are like on earth. Imagine in heaven. (laughs) No, we're all going to go, I'm here by His grace. He did this. That man with the five wounds, that's how I'm here. There's only two basic religions in the world. There's only two. Every belief system can be divided into one of two systems. I don't care how many cults, I don't care how many different religions and different expressions and different books, it can all be divided into two separate categories. One 
is the religion of human achievement. I do, I work, I practice, I pray. The second category is the salvation by divine accomplishment. That's this. Jesus did it all on the cross. Paid the debt we could never pay. And he says, do you believe that? Do you, from your heart, in your heart, believe? Which means to adhere to, commit to. But it begins by saying, yes, I believe. Are you willing to do that? Because if so, I will take all of what Jesus did and I will apply it to your account. By the way, the word accounted in, 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 in Romans 4, lagidzomai, it's a banking term. It means to put something to the credit side of your ledger. Okay, so look at your life this way. Here's a picture of your life. You've got two columns. One is the debit side, one is the credit side. On the debit side, it's our sins, our sins, our sins, and it fills it all up. Our sins, our sins, our sins. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. On the credit side, on your own, what do you have to put there that will balance out all of the sin? You know, a lot of people say church, sincerity, good works, rituals. And God will say, I'm sorry, you can pour all sorts of stuff into that category and it won't balance out the debt side. The debit side is too great. You can never by your own cancel out the debt. So what God says, I got the solution. I am willing to count all of the sins ever committed by every person and I know what they are and I am willing to declare that anyone and everyone can be made right with God by putting what my son did to their account. And all they have to do is believe that that's the one God sent. Believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead and they will be saved. So Paul really makes a big deal out of this. In Romans 4 and in Galatians chapter 3, and um, also uh, James will mention it in chapter 2. But I need to get back to Genesis if I'm going to finish one chapter tonight. (laughs) So he believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, accounted it to him for righteousness. So just remember this. This is way before the law of Moses. This is way before he could circumcise his children. He hadn't done any good works. He didn't do any ritual. All he did is go, I believe that. To us, it would sound crazy. I'm going to have a child, but I believe that. God said, you're right with me. You're righteous with me. Verse 7. And then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. Question. Why in the middle of a dialogue is God introducing himself? In a normal conversation, this would seem out of place. If I'm talking to you and, and, and we've already had introduction and I've talked to you for years and we're talking one day over lunch and I go, my name is Skip. <laughs> and you go, what? what? Did you just have like a stroke? <laughs> Why an introduction? They know each other. Well, this is important. You're going to find this a lot in the Bible. You're going to find that in normal conversations after introductions have taken place, that God will just sort of say, now, I am the Lord who did this and will do that. It's called the autocharygma 
of God. If you want a theological term for that, the autocharygma or the self-proclamation of God. Anytime God wants to underscore a point, it's like me grabbing your face and go, look me in the eyes. Now, right now, I want to tell you who I am and what I can do for you. That's what God is doing. It's the autocharygma, the self-proclamation. I want you to know, Abram, who I am, who's talking to you, and what I'm able to do. And that's what he does here in verse 7. And verse 8, he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Okay, now, right about now you're thinking, I don't get Abram. I don't get this dude. God makes a promise to him and he goes, well, I don't have any kids. And then, and then God makes all these promises and he goes, well, how will I know? So you're thinking, this is not the man of faith. Well, let me complicate it even a little further. I'm going to just sort of stack the deck against me before I answer that. Do you remember the father of John the Baptist in the New Testament? His name was Zacharias. He was in the temple. He was the guy who would burn incense at the altar of incense. And it was his turn to do so. And he goes in and he sees the angel of the Lord. It's Gabriel. He doesn't know it yet. Standing there, kind of hanging out at the altar as he's going to light incense. And he's afraid. And the angel says, don't be afraid. And he says, your wife Elizabeth is going to have a child and you're going to name him John and he's going to bring joy to your household and he's going to go before the Messiah and the power of the Lord and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and children to the fathers. And he listens to this and he has an apparition. And Zacharias goes, how do I know that this is really going to happen? The angel says, okay, you want a sign, do you? You won't be able to talk. For nine months, until your son is born. Now, I don't know what life was like in the household of Zacharias and Elizabeth, and their conversations, but I do know that statistically women do outnumber men when it comes to their words. So now he can't even answer anything back, and he would go home and he'd be listening to Elizabeth like, now, 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 what happened? What did you say? And write that out for me. And, you know, this would happen. And so nine months go by. Because the angel said, you didn't believe me, you doubted me. So you're thinking, now, so what's the difference between what happened with Zacharias in the temple to Gabriel, who got like punished for it, and, and Abram, who says, how, how will I know this is going to happen? This was not unbelief for Abram. It was not unbelief. You know why? Because we're told so. In verse 6, he believed God, and God accounted it to him for righteousness. So it's not an act of unbelief. He is simply looking for pragmatic solutions because ten different Canaanite nations, Amorites, etc., have settled in the land of Canaan. It is outnumbered. How is this going to happen? How am I going to take over a land that is already occupied by all of these people groups? That's, that's the question. But he believed, okay, I know I'm going to have a baby. I know it's going to come from my own body. I believe that. But how is this all going to work in this land with this nation and all of these nations? So, here's the answer, verse 9. He said, bring a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. Now, I'm going to warn you, what you're about to read sounds like it comes out of the twilight zone. 
It's in the Bible. It is a weird story. And I read this and I picture Rod Serling in the background. You know, picture if you will. Bloody carcasses slain in the desert. An aged man looks on. He has just entered the twilight zone. That's what I'm picturing. It's just, it's like, what, what is this all about? Here's a hint at what's going on. I'll kind of give you the goods before we read it. It's called a covenant, a berit in Hebrew. If you look ahead in verse 18, on the same day the Lord made a covenant, a pact, an agreement, a testament is another word. And in those days, well, let's read it. and You'll see what they did in those days. And when the vultures came down, verse 11, on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and a great darkness fell upon him. And he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge Afterward, they will come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces." Today, if you and I want to make a contract, we might shake hands in agreement. We might sign a document. In a court of law, you might have to put your hand on a Bible and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In those days, they cut animals in two and put them in a path, in a road. And the people walked between them. The people making the covenant walked between the carcasses of animals. And because there was shedding of blood, it was more solemn an oath. And as the two parties walked between the pieces of the dead carcasses of animals, they would state the terms of the contract. They would say them out loud. Why the dead animals? As if to say, if you or I either break our end of the bargain, may that happen to us. May that happen to us. Let me read a portion of an ancient Hittite covenant from around the same period of time, they took in this covenant sinews or tendons of an animal and salt and threw it into a pan of hot fire. And here's what they said, and I quote, just as these sinews split into fragments on the hearth, whoever breaks these oaths shows disrespect to the king. Let these oaths seize him and let him split into fragments like the sinews. And so they would do that after cutting the animals in two. That's how covenants were made in ancient Canaanite, Hittite uh, days. And so the animals are cut. And by the way, some people think that the idea at a ceremony, you know, when you cut the ribbon that is in front of something, you take a scissor and you cut the ribbon, comes from the cutting of the covenant from way back when. Anyway, he does it. Abram cuts the animals. But he waits a long time. Seemingly, it's early in the morning. You've know, you got to get a cow, and you've got to kill a cow, and you've got to cut a cow in half and lay one half of the cow here. And 
one half of the cow there. You know, holy cow, it took a long time. So they did that. And, and then you had to take a, a three-year-old, a, a ram, uh, a male sheep who um, uh, has never been gelded. Um, you would take uh, th- these animals. It took some time to dress them and cut them. So he presumably did it early in the morning. And then he waited. And he waited. And he waited. And the sun got hotter and the carcasses started to stink and decompose and birds start to come down. That's what the story says. So Abram now has to get up and shoo the birds away. And he's like looking at his, his um, sundial on his wrist. And he's going, man, I've been waiting a long time. How come God isn't telling me anything? I'm waiting. Where's God? He told me to do this. Where's God? And he waited and he waited until it got dark. And he's falling asleep and he's falling under this depression and dread again. And finally, God shows up when it's dark and he's exhausted. Question. Why did God wait so long after giving him a command to cut the animals? Why did God wait so long to show up? Here's the answer, I believe. To make Abraham so exhausted that he was unable to participate in the covenant. He had to watch it. So he's watching as this burning torch just starts drifting between these bloody carcasses. He's just going, whoa, I thought the vision was heavy. This is really heavy. And a smoking oven, a fire pot, the smoke coming out of it, and a burning torch is just sort of hovering and moving. All of that was symbolic of the presence of God. A burning torch was always a symbol of God's presence. The cherubim that guarded the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword. Um, the children of Israel were directed by a pillar of cloud and a f- pillar of fire by night. Um, all of these are symbols of the presence of God. God waited for Abram to be so exhausted that he couldn't participate. And here's why. God was making a unilateral covenant a promise of the land, not contingent upon Abram keeping or doing anything at all. God was saying, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And now God is saying, I'm giving you a land, and it's not a bilateral covenant where you keep your term and I keep my term. It's a unilateral covenant. It's my promise, and I'm declaring it. And so that Abram wouldn't be able to participate in this berit, he's just exhausted. And God does it all. It's hard to wait on God. You know it's true. You hate waiting on Him. You, you all, we all have in our minds a timetable when we think this would be the perfect time for God to do something. And God, you discover, has His own timetable. And we don't like it. And sometimes He will let it drag on and on and on till we're just so exhausted. And then God does something and you go, Well, I never could have done that on my own. Oh, that's the lesson you need to learn. Now, I worked my way into a corner. I worked my way into a problem with this one. Because if we have a covenant that is an unconditional covenant, here's the problem. In a few books... When God has promised them and promised them and promised Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes, the land called the land of Israel, God makes another covenant, covenant of the law of Moses. 
in which, God says, if you obey me, you can stay here. If you disobey me, I'm kicking you out. Does one covenant cancel the other covenant? How can you own the land unconditionally, but occupy the land conditionally? That's the big problem. And I'd love to answer that, but it's 8.30. So that was a setup for next week. We're not able to even finish the chapter except to read the rest of it and just pick up on a few thoughts as we tie in the next chapter. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Termites, just just making sure that you're following along, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, and the Turn Out the Lights. All these ites are are there, and, uh, and we'll pick up on this as we get into chapter 16 next time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful promises, and I, I, again, I am so thankful for a body of believers that so loves truth that they want to go deep. They don't want just a few psalms and a couple of Sermon on the Mount passages, but they want all of the Word of God, the full counsel of God. You are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. Lord, as we take these truths, and for some of us, we've known them. For others of us, it's new material. For others, we're just plowing up that ground again and reaffirming these things. Thank you for your promises and your patience with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.